everyone. Um, it's me, Timua, and here with Rizzy. And today we have a very special guest, um, Edward Sinot. Sino? Is that, is that how you pronounce it? Sino. Yeah, he is an Indigenous academic and um, activist. Uh, before we begin, um, we'd just like to thank the original custodians of this land, the Indigenous people of Australia, as the land was never ceded. Um, and Edward, do you want to just give introduction um, about what you do? Yeah, hey, thanks both for having me. Um, interacted on social media for a while and stuff too, so it's cool to be talking uh, to you both. Um, so my name's Eddie. I'm um, based in Brisbane in Queensland, but um, from southern New South Wales, which is where my family, where um, my Wamba Wamba family are from. Um, and I think I'm probably described, there's like a couple of different descriptions floating around about me when I do talks and stuff, but I guess technically I'm a public lawyer and a researcher and work in the higher education space, um, predominantly focused on Indigenous peoples and the law. So all kind of things about... You know, whether it's our current interaction with Indigenous community and the legal system, all the kind of obvious things that people, especially through the latest protest movements and stuff like that, Black Lives Matter around incarceration. But um, I'm particularly interested too in Australian history and kind of where we got to or how we got to where we are now and what kind of things structurally we can do um, to change, to, to improve all of our lives and to make things better for Indigenous peoples as well. Yeah, Sweet. yeah, and um, your focus is on the Uluru Statement, is it? Yeah, so I have um, was most recently manager of the Indigenous Law Centre at UNSW, and that centre has had a formal partnership for a number of years now with the Uluru Dialogue, which is a group that kind of continues the work of the Uluru Statement from the heart. Um, but under its previous director, Professor Megan Davis, um, she's also... On the NRL Commission, she's a pretty prominent kind of Indigenous person in Australia, full stop. Um, she's kind of been leading constitutional reform in Australia for the kind of the last decade through the law centre at UNSW. So I was kind of involved in that, or I have been involved in that for the last kind of three years, and then official, you know, more of an official capacity the last year, um, and then continue advocacy for that. So that's um, a statement that was put out by... Um, technically or, or how i describe it a representative cross-section of the indigenous community and i guess we'll get into what that actually means because not everyone agrees with it and there's some differences in the community and stuff um but basically it was a bit of a deliberative dialogue process where people got together from across the country and culminated at all in 2017 and issued a statement to the australian people rather than to politicians which is a kind of important thing about the state of politics in australia at the moment or globally as well yeah and um, called for constitutional reform. So a First Nations voice to parliament and to actually amend our constitution to, to cement that in there. And then a process of um, agreement or treaty making and truth telling to follow that. So some of the kind of things that I spoke about, you know, in my introduction there about some of the structural reforms to the country to develop a better relationship. Right. <clears throat> so just, uh... Can you just so there wasn't a treaty um, in Australia when the British took over. So, right. um, and I have there has been some calls to get a treaty first before 
um, recognition in the Constitution. Can you just mm. explain what the difference would be and how that sort of works? Yeah, I guess one of the things that I'd like to recognise first is treaty is absolutely part of the Uluru Statement. It's just kind of second in the process. But treaty, more broadly, is such an important thing for the Indigenous community, you know, symbolically, a lot of our activism and politics, you know, for, for generations has been based around treaty. And it comes back to that point that you picked up, this fundamental grievance that there's never been, you know, formal recognition or agreement or a treaty signed between um, the various different Indigenous peoples in, in Australia and um, and the British. So there has been, you know, our closest neighbour in New Zealand has a Treaty of Waitangi, um, you know, North America. So the ones that are very similar to us, but also in other places around the world, um, if you look at Indigenous peoples in Norway, the Sami, they um, don't have a treaty per se, but they've got a um, parliament and they've got formal agreements. So for various different reasons, <laughs> it didn't happen here in Australia. Um, it's, it's, it, there's an interesting historical point, though, in that that um, when the Treaty of Waitangi was being signed in New Zealand, it was the governor of New South Wales um, at the time in Australia that had... The authority over New Zealand and oh. the British and the British Home Office were um, kind of anxious to make sure that the what they perceived as the mistakes that had been made in New South Wales wouldn't be repeated in New Zealand. And it was one of the right. so kind of what had happened here in Australia or what they'd failed to do, despite instructions that they had originally to enter into agreements and stuff like that was kind of one of the key catalysts for pushing for that agreement in New Zealand. And then obvious, you know, different domestic circumstances and stuff because too. So that, that's interesting yeah. because like, even after that, when they had the Treaty of Waitangi, the, you know, the genocide against Indigenous people still kept going yeah. on. So and they obviously a, didn't recognise much wrong. No, absolutely. And that's one of the key, That's I mean, you've picked up on a really key point about treaties themselves, right? So even North America is a perfect example, Canada and the US, even though they had all these treaties, it doesn't mean that, you know, those peoples have necessarily fared any better. Um, they do today in some particular ways that, that we we don't. So they, they, they've got a, you know, in, Can, in Canada, in their constitution, they've got section 35 of the constitution, which guarantees them a seat at the table to, to be able to talk about and negotiate and basically be able to put their foot down and say no. But then you still got, you know, the, the weight or the force of, you know, capital and the state and everything against you as well. So even in New Zealand, um, the Treaty of Waitangi didn't really become the modern day important thing it is now until they went through a series of pretty serious political reforms from like the 1970s, 1980s onwards. Hmm. And it took a lot of, you know, legislative reform, cultural reform to be able to, you know, recognise it and give it the important weight that it does. So would and the... So final goal be to sort of have a system like in New Zealand where there are certain um, seats reserved for the Indigenous people or? Um, not necessarily. So that's been explored in Australia a fair bit. And the reason, what it gets really complicated here because our local circumstances have developed. Um, whilst we are so similar to New Zealand and Canada and the US, we now Indigenous people's relations and stuff like that, our local circumstances are so different when you look at it from a political and, and legal perspective as well. So we're not in the original position where we're talking about negotiating a treaty before a state exists. The Australian state exists now, whether we 
like it or not, you know, that's the hard political reality that we face. And according to them, our sovereignty um, has been extinguished since 1788, and we have certain rights that are recognised or incorporated into the Australian state. So it becomes a question of um, what can we do with that? How can we negotiate? How we can how can we push that? Some people who talk about treaty and sovereignty first talk about um, our status as sovereigns that we can be recognised internationally and go to an international court and you know enforce a treaty agreement with the Australian uh, government. Okay, I see. And if anyone. Uh, if anyone, you know, wants to understand the Australian government's <laughs> attitude towards the international community or treaties, you just got to look at our refugee policy. Um, you know, they, yeah. the international community can't force us to do anything, really. And UNDRIP, or the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, is a bit of a mouthful. It mm. establishes a lot of these different rights and standards of self-determination and sovereignty. Uh, but one of the very last clauses is that nothing um, will compromise the integrity of the states that are involved in this process itself. So yeah. even when we go to the international community, um, yeah, even you know, if you look at a lot of the stuff that's going on at the moment between the, the biggest stuff between Chinese relations in the US and our own neighbourhood, it's the state actors themselves that inform or make up the authority of the international community. So Australia, the US, Canada, New Zealand, places like that aren't going to you know, commit suicide on the international scene or admit authority. So we're dealing now with this structure where it wasn't done originally when it should have done, been done. It's very hard to, you know, retrospectively go back and enforce a legal point at that at that time. But also sovereignty in our lands weren't taken in one kind of sweeping act with a legal declaration. They were taken, you know, parcel by parcel, bit by bit over time and spread out you know so the east coast and the south coast of australia so you know melbourne um and new south wales sydney places that were impacted by colonialism much earlier than say darwin and you know the northern territory and places like that and you can see that difference of impact in the extent to which native title is now recognized in australia yeah so the high court has recognized native title it says we're not sovereign but it says we have this right to to our lands that continued and that's based on an older english common law tradition and international law but the more successful claims and the more substantive claims for native title are in the areas where colonizations <coughs> had the less impact so you're looking at you know predominantly western australia and northern territory and whilst there are some areas significant areas in um, New South Wales and Victoria now that do have native title over them, it's not the same extent that they have in other areas. So we've got this real mess of a political and legal work, relationship. Yeah. And basically now we've got the Australian Constitution as the supreme authority in Australia that the government and the Australian state operates under and recognises. So anything we do, um, say if we entered into a treaty agreement um, like they're happening at the Victorian level or the Queensland level, it's all susceptible to the power of the Commonwealth. So there's a clear legal hierarchy. The Queen, <laughs> through the Governor-General, which is ridiculous, you know, Republic is a whole other conversation, sits at the top. Um, the Commonwealth has certain powers to do certain things based on what they can do in the Constitution, and that's mm. it. Um, so there's, and then there's this whole history there. So the whole point, from the Uluru Statements perspective, and, and the way they got to that, they did these deliberative, they're called deliberative dialogues. So you get... Um, people from community who do like civics education, they go through this history, they talk about what the issues in the community are, and they, then they talk about a solutions-based approach to, to how best achieve 
you know the things that we want so that's how they kind of come out of this idea of voice treaty and truth so treaty is still absolutely part of it but because of this mess that we're talking about and because of the position of the constitution at the top the thing that came out of the dialogues with the Uluru statement was we need this voice to be able to implement structural reform to the constitution and the structure of the nation itself first so then we can be resourced and empowered to actually enter into these treaty agreements and do truth telling and if we don't do that well the government can come along and tear up a treaty whenever they want and we don't yeah. have a constitutional hook to try and enforce them to do it and right. then also we're not in a you know we're disempowered we're struggling in our communities with lack of resources and funding and you know, the latest budget hasn't done us any good either. And it, yeah. um, so there is for a lot of people a chicken and egg type thing, which ones come first and how do you do it? Mm. But, um, you know, for myself, I, you know, I'm a constitutional scholar or, or a legal perspective from that point of view and um, a lot of the experts, but then a lot of the community stuff that went into and formed the literary statement as well was about we need to reset the relationship and give the relationship a better structure and then start to negotiate on those things. Otherwise, um, there's something in Australia called ATSIC, which you both might be aware of. It was the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. So it was a legislative self-determination body that existed and the government basically <laughs> didn't like what it was doing and through bipartisan support from Labor and Liberals at the time, it was John Howard was Prime Minister, Amanda Vanstone, the Minister and Mark Latham, the opposition leader, they disbanded ATSIC. And that pretty much could happen to any treaty or any negotiation we go into now unless we achieve that structural reform up front. So, because we have a lot of um, American listeners and they might not qu um, quite understand how law um, is different from, say, the US, where they have a yep. you know Supreme Court, which is quite, you know, quite the story at the moment as well. Yeah. Uh, we have a high court in Australia. Um, do, you want to, do you know the differences? Or can you sort of quite sort of talk about them um, in how yeah, we so, interpret um, our, our federal systems often described as a hybrid of American federalism or republicanism and the kind of Westminster system that we get from the UK. Um, so we don't have a president, um, but we've got we've got the kind of three different arms of you know government and the judiciary and the executive that they have in the US. So the easiest way to kind of think about it is um, their Supreme Court is like our High Court. Um, our, our judges aren't life appointments, though. Um, they are appointed by our Attorney General, um, which, which they have in their executives as well, and they have to retire at the age of 70. Um, so we've got the High Court as our judiciary, and then the federal court system under that, and then the state kind of parts, which would be very similar to the US. Congress is pretty much our House of Representatives. Mm. And then we have a Senate as well, which is kind of like theirs. And then um, rather than having the president with the kind of presidential powers that they have in the US, we've got this kind of hybrid mix of the, um, the Queen and the Governor General. Um, but they have very limited powers in, in our system. So the, the seat of power is really the executive government. And the executive government's made up of um, the Prime Minister, who's the leader of the majority party in the House of Representatives, and then they have their ministers, and that ranges from, you know, 15 to 25, depending on the government. So just like in the US, they have Secretary of State and all those executive positions that the President appoints in our system, they're made up from the majority party. Yeah. And, um, so they basically, you know, they're the ones that are in charge. Um, it'd be like... Um, Nancy Pelosi being, you know, as the kind of, as she's got that 
position in their house of reps. So it'd be like her being now prime minister and the Democrats having an executive government or something like that. Yeah, pretty much. And that's why it changes so much. And yeah. basically they hand out like jobs for mates. They just make a random portfolio. It's like you're minister of small yeah. business in random. Yeah, we have jobs. like um, assistant ministers assisting the minister for the northern, you know, the North Queensland because it's this, you know, weird separatist idea about splitting North Queensland from South Queensland and um, all those other kind of things. And in a funny way, they all relate back to this mess that I'm talking about, about the constitutional history of Australia and how it kind of came up. But um, yeah, that's the kind of system that we're dealing with. And at the Commonwealth level, they they have this power in our constitution called the race power. And um, originally, the Constitution didn't say anything about Indigenous people. So Indigenous people and making laws for Indigenous peoples was left to the states and territories. Um, And that was mainly because some of the states and territories that had large populations of Indigenous people, there were some arguments that they might be able to stack, you know, with voting numbers or arguments for payments and compensation and stuff like that. So... We've got a weird mix, which people in the US would be familiar with, of this state authority versus Commonwealth authority as well. Um, But then during the kind of civil rights movement area and stuff that impacted here in Australia as well, we had a referendum to change our constitution in 1967, which gave the Commonwealth the power to make laws for people of any race. So it's one of those kind of um, stupid things from history that we're stuck with now, that the power that the Commonwealth has... so archaic. Yeah. So the power that the Commonwealth has to make laws for Indigenous peoples these days is based on race and um, racism, which is embedded in our constitution. It, it always amazes me. Northern Territory is not a um, a state yet. Um, it, it's it just doesn't. I don't know. Because if Tasmania can be a state, why isn't the Northern Territory a state? Is like yes, kind of historical reason for that, or I don't, I don't know what's going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, there, there is. So. Tasmania is a funny one, too, because Brisbane City Council has a budget that rivals the Tasmanian state budget, too. So, you know, Brisbane City Council is a local government, but it's the largest local government in Australia. And, um, you know, just another side point <laughs> of the political makeup. Yeah. Um, the Northern Territory was originally part of South Australia. Yeah. Um, and then it became and then it was managed by the Commonwealth and then um, it became a territory in its own right. So we're now constitution. There's a power called the territory's power where they can make new territories. So the other one we have is ACT, which is our nation's capital. But um, so the Northern Territory has got this real weird kind of historical mix of it was like the front. It was the last kind of colonial frontier. So North Queensland, the Northern Territory and Western Australia. Um, and so not only is it impacted in that aspect, you know, for what the extent of Indigenous rights today, so that um, almost the majority, so about 50% of the population in the Northern Territory is Indigenous compared to 3% nationally as well. Um, so, you know, that's an outcome of that different impact of colonial history too, but it impacted administratively. So whilst the constitution left Aboriginal affairs to the states, um, they had direct involvement in managing Aboriginal people through the, through their control over the Northern Territory. Mm. And there's a lot of legislation that they kind of implemented and led um, that kind of meant they were involved when technically they weren't involved in the other states. But then I also mean, got the massive kind of fiscal power of the Commonwealth compared to the states as well. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't um, if, if Northern Territory NT was to become a state giving 10 senators um, to NT, that surely would help 
indigenous representation right in, in some way uh, well yeah um it would but then i mean they've just been fighting the northern territory themselves to maintain their two seats that they have <laughs> sure. yeah they have one now right next election but, uh, they i think the government um matthias corman if anyone's familiar with him um yeah, i think he can yeah, I think he confirmed recently that they would maintain the two seats in the House of Representatives. Um, but one of the one of the other problems when we talk about because we're not because we're not in that position to you know negotiate the treaty and what we get before the Australian state exists, like they kind of did in New Zealand, where they got um, guaranteed representation in Parliament, where we're stuck, you know, we're limited in some ways. Whereas if we wanted to do those things, we need to change the constitution as well. And so the the amount of senators is proportionate to the amount of people in the House of Representatives set in the constitution. And the senators themselves are supposed to be the state's representatives. Yeah. Um, so it's supposed to be a house of review, so it can review legislation coming through mm. the House of Reps and do all that stuff. But they're proportionately based on how many, you know, for each state. So Tasmania, which has a very small population, has as many senators as Queensland does, which has a much larger population. Yeah. Uh, but that, you know, and as I was talking about before, US would understand that, you know, with this idea about states' powers for government and um, something that's been, you know, pretty prevalent in the corona response with President Trump and state governments and stuff lately too. I mean, um, actually, yeah, you're right. I mean, even in the US where they have state, like they have senators, like two for each state, even like North or South Dakota or like state, um, or say Arizona where there's huge um, indigenous populations, they still don't have any indigenous yeah. representation at the federal level. So they probably would, that's probably what have happened in Australia as well. Like right now, I think um, the current federal member for, for the one in Darwin and there's one in sort of Palmerston. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're both they're both white Australians, or is it one of them one of them indigenous? I can't remember. Uh, no, no, they're, they're both um, white. The senators, um, Melendary McCartney, is a senator from um, is the senator from the Northern Territory in in Labor, yeah. um, and um, but yeah, it's it's you know it's hard. It's there's the kind of real mess of there's a constitutional structure we dictates because you know some people have also said we could establish a seventh state in australia and that that could be for indigenous people and there's a whole like there's a mess that can you even do that based on what the constitution says which i don't think you can in the way that i won't bore people with the technicalities on that but then there's also the point about who indigenous people are and our cultures and traditions is very much based on our connection to our traditional lands as well so just putting a geographic boundary around a part of territory which belongs to a particular indigenous group isn't going to fly well with, you know, everyone else that's kind of being subsumed into that group. And that's, yeah. you know, these are kind of clear examples of what I'm talking about. It's like, well, how the hell do we work through this mess? You know, we're not starting at the beginning of the relationship. We're 230-something years into the relationship. And that's why, um, I mean, that's one of the key reasons why I'm a big supporter of the Uluru Statement and that sequence that it has of getting the voice first and being able to drive some of those structural reforms to be able to build up the empowerment and resources to be able to have these conversations through a treaty process rather than, um, you know, any anyone would be familiar with the kind of unequal bargaining power of, um, you know, is, whether it's vulnerable communities, Indigenous communities, individuals dealing with the government kind of thing. So without those structural changes in the empowerment and resources where, you know, literally looking down the barrel of a gun going into a room, being forced to sign agreements that 
Um, you know, in Queensland lately, they've been talking about providing things to Indigenous peoples, such as you know, clean drinking water and housing services, which you should be entitled to as just a citizen of a state, not yeah. as a you know treaty negotiation process. Yeah. Treaties, treaties should be about reparations, about you know law, about the ownership of the land and stuff like that, not about you know social welfare services that people should be entitled to as, as citizens. Yeah, like there's areas I've seen that have, don't have any um, electricity, no internet, and it, it's just shocking. Like, because um, I, I know that there are certain companies right now in Australia, um, especially like Inju and any other organisations that basically try to sort of be parasites in these communities because of the lack of education and knowledge coming in. Yeah. And I, I've seen it a lot. Um, especially there was like that story about the vet student loans, where yeah. there was thousands and thousands of like um, predatory schools signing up Indigenous communities to hundreds of million dollars of debt just because they yeah. didn't know what's going on. That's, that's just they, disgusting. They, yeah. yeah, they get registered with Centrelink. Um, and yeah. then I, I know of cases where people either didn't finish the course or finished the course three years ago and they've still had, you know, $75 a fortnight taken out of their Centrelink payment for the last three years. Yeah. Um, so, and Like it's a diploma, it's 50 grand. It's just yeah. a scam. Yeah. And you look at the government's attitude in Australia through RoboDebt to, you know, recipients of welfare whilst you've got corporations literally bleeding communities and people you know whether it's inner city <coughs> Brisbane or whether it's out at um Mutajulu or different communities across the country yeah, yeah. And, and we don't really learn anything about it like um I think one of the, the main things is getting spreading the word about the Uluru statement because in Melbourne growing up here we did not learn anything about the indigenous population except for maybe the headmaster saying something about um the local people in our in our, in our land hanging mm. them and that's it and there was all these stereotypes going around very racist stereotypes about you know working and and all this yeah. laziness and education it was just yeah and yeah and um i mean it's you know so much part of the australian story that that all those bullshit stereotypes about aboriginal people and i mean racism you know more, more broadly my my family are from or my dad's family Melbourne and um you know he talks about when he was growing up it was the you know the Greek and the Italian communities that were the ones that targeted and then you know become the Vietnamese communities after that with the influx of immigration you know it's but before that Chinese again <laughs> yeah and before that um especially after the influx of gold rushes and stuff like that it was predominantly the Chinese community yeah um and so there's this long history of you know racism being so structurally embedded <laughs> in the Australian DNA of you know um, it's a it's a much more noticeable thing in in other places but even in some towns you go to today you know it impacts things on the way geographically towns are spaced and um, so where where my family live in Denaliquin um, oh, you know, the can... north the north side of the town is where the Aboriginal community lives, and that's geographically based on the historical racist decisions about where people moved to and stuff like that. And then that impacts things like investment in streets and infrastructure and stuff like that. And I mean, that's how um, Chinatowns came and rose. They were basically ghettos for yeah, Chinese people, yeah. but now they're glorified as like a tourist spot, which is kind of kind of un not very cool. But um, yeah, like you know, this, you know the Queen Victoria Market area down in um, yep. the centre of Melbourne, yeah. There's like a graveyard underneath it, and it's very sort of controversial a few years ago because we're trying to like re re redevelop it. And that graveyard, the only reason it was there, it was actually like a graveyard, it was just like a landfill filled with um, the bones of Chinese indigenous people because then mm. we weren't important enough to actually get a graveyard. 
Yeah. So we just dumped our bodies in there. And now they're like, well, we can't really remove that because it's like sort of against, it's kind of sacred. And it just shows us this intertwined history because um, I know that it was during the early period, there was a lot of anti, it was laws against Chinese people marrying um, white people. Mm. It was illegal. So they like marry indigenous people because there was a lack of Chinese women. So there was a lot yeah. of um, very much mixed families back then. So there's, there's, I mean, we talked about this, I think, before the podcast started, but there's a lot yeah. of very much intermixed um, stories of oh, the, You know, the history of... Um racism and it forces people to you know the sides of predominant society or whatever but you know one of the big areas especially in northern territory but queensland's um act or legislation it had originally it was this i can't remember the full title but it's something about the sale of opium and this restriction of movement or something like that and the sale of opium was targeted against the um, chinese community but some of the horrific things that you read when you're going through the historical record of what they would write and say about, um, you know, the Chinese population and indigenous community and you know, the supposed influence of Chinese on indigenous people. So the indigenous person in this instance is always made out to be, you know, this feeble minded idiot that can't progress in society. Whereas the Chinese person is always made out to be this you know, manipulative devil kind of person that's going mm. to be a bad influence. When... A lot of similar anti-Semitic tropes. I mean, yeah, Rick yeah. pointed out something today about it. It's like that yeah. um, cartoon. Exactly. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, ben Garrison, uh, <laughs> he, he made a cartoon um, and it shows uh, <laughs> Joe Biden and um, Hunter. Mate and Hunter. Hunter Biden being in in President Xi's pocket, and President Xi is a crude racial stereotype. He's portrayed as Winnie the Pooh, mm. but he's rubbing his hands together in a way that very strong connotations to historical anti-Semitism. Very rich, lots yeah. of money. <laughs> yeah, and sort of pulling the string. I think like you know Ben Garrison, uh, he he would never specifically. Um, admit to anti-Semitism, he, he would probably use the word globalists, I guess. Um, Which is just the new... The new the international big class. Yeah, yeah. The, the whole conspiracy stuff about George Soros and, and everything, right? The globalists. Yeah. Are, yeah. I mean, you know, we, we get it a lot in the campaign stuff for the Uluru Statement because some of our um, prominent supporters and people that have been prominently involved are the Jewish community and there's a large you know there's there's a specific kind of issue in a lot of the indigenous activist spaces with settler colonialism about you know what's going on in Israel and Palestine what's been going on there for a long time and um you know but that doesn't automatically correlate to all um Israelis are you know um bloody settler colonial because like people in opposition are Israelis yeah. or Jews, yeah. Exactly, and um, but Mark Mark Liebler, who's a prominent Australian lawyer and um, you know, runs a law firm and has been involved in reconciliation for years, and uh, for a while I was administering the um, administrating the Uluru Statement social media accounts and everything, and um, just the rubbish that really started to filter in about the globalists and Mark Liebler being part of the globalist alliance and who's trying to force Indigenous people to assimilate through into the constitution and. Jeez. Wow. Yeah, you know, it's... It, yeah, and um, I mean, what can you, you know, 
I, I reported as much as I could and, you know, made, you put a statement out saying, you know, we're against all forms of racism and, you know, anti-Semitism. Um, but there's a, it's another one of these things too, because of the history of racism, the Indigenous community in Australia has a very unique and specific relationship with the Jewish community too. So mm. William Cooper, who was a um, prominent Indigenous activist in the 1930s, um, he led the only... Um, protest. I always get the name. It's the the Crystal Night, the in the eight, um, 1930s when um, the the brown shirts and Hitler and them led the attack of the Jewish businesses and everything. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. William Cooper led one of the, the the only protest, a silent protest on the on the um, German embassy in Melbourne. Um, I think it was Melbourne a- against this, and basically it was this idea that you know all forms of racism and oppression are bad. Wait, so it was the indigenous man that led the protest? Yeah, indigenous man that led. And it's the only person. That's yeah. That's, and he, we never uh, learn about that. That's crazy. Yeah. He's now um. You should Google him. He has. He had the most fantastic moustache. It's it's crazy. Um, <laughs> and he 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 was from Cumbergunja, which is um on the New South Wales Victorian border. It's where some of my family are from. So it's something that I've, you know, do a lot of research on that area and stuff. But he, he was quite prominent in that time. You know, they would use, they'd point out the hypocrisy in society as well. So um, in some strange ways, because of the education that he was lucky enough to get on the on the mission that he lived on, um, he was more educated in some ways than what a lot of, you know, predominant working class white people would have been at that time as well. And being able to speak back in the same language and the same, you know, pointing out the hypocrisy of telling Indigenous people just to pray to God or the Bible. And, you know, they're all Christians too. So they're using this language and preaching back to the community and saying, you know, we're all of one blood. How can you be so racist and oppressive to our people? And, you know, and also, hey, there's this guy, this, you know, F with Hitler across the world. Yeah, and I, yeah. Yeah, at this time when his own people are being oppressed and have been removed and been placed on missions, here he is leading this protest. Um, and so he, he was a big part of that community in Fitzroy that really developed at that time and, um, and still has that strong Indigenous connection today. In I mean, there's a lot of connections in that way as well because Hitler basically tried to copy what the Americans did to Indigenous people in America. Um, he sort of symbolised them and thought they were doing what yeah he the, do. basically eradicate the people and put you know versions of his own people in there and this is so i, I can see like the similarities and why um th- there would be protests because in a way it, it, it's you know eradication of indigenous peoples from the world mm. yeah it's yeah um, and you know um not to get into the the horrific heaviness <laughs> of the holocaust but um all of that is, you know, the colonial empire speaking back to Europe and being weaponized in that form against the Jewish people. So whether it's the Bel- you know, the Belgians in the Congo and the Germans with their own, um, you know, colonial empires that they had. And, um, you often read these stories or you hear these stories about African-Americans fighting World War II and, um, you know, the Germans would drop propaganda on them and say, yeah. you know, why are you fighting for a country that does this to you? And it was very similar for our own um, Indigenous men um, that went that went and fought in the war too. Um, you know, why are you fighting? And William Cooper, he had lost a son in World War One, and he was um, against Indigenous men fighting in World War Two. And he, he actually wrote a couple of letters and pamphlets in the local newspapers. Um, the Argus was one of the newspapers he used to write to a lot in Melbourne about um, 
the kind of hypocrisy and the ridiculous idea of expecting indigenous men to fight um, for a country that denies them their, their basic human rights. But yeah. for a lot of people at that time, and I know my own family that fought in World War Two, um, they didn't have anything else going for them. There was, you know, they were struck off from their work. They were denied work because of the racism at the time. Um, they needed to be able to try and provide for their families, however they did. And I remember my nan said it to me, and it stuck with me ever since. You know, like a lot of poor people, I guess too, they weren't going to fight for um, God and king and country they'll go and fight to put food on the table yeah basically i mean that bringing about the troop service stuff um i think we would know about it um basically there was a tweet by uh drew pavlo about um chinese soldiers serving like real chinese australians how they he, he loves them and i found that quite offensive because as you said a lot of them these chinese australians were serving world War one because yeah. they wanted to just fit in and not be ostracized and get fit on the table yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, so it seems correct. like there was some sort of like uh, prove your loyalty to uh, mm. to the country, and then when you when when they came back, they were treated treated how how they were beforehand. Nothing changed. Oh, yeah, Billy Sin, like that sniper guy, who's you know published all his movies. He's also the actor's like a white guy for some reason. I don't even know how that works. Um, he he died yesterday. <laughs> yeah, I was get, I was going to mention um, Billy. You know, yeah. and he was a he was a working union hero of that era too. Like it's it, it's same with a lot of the indigenous. So they had the soldiers settlements when you got back from the war, and you could get access to land and you know be able to develop that for yourself. That was all provided free based on your service. So none of that was available to indigenous soldiers once they returned. They um, they returned like many other people, and you know a lot of the people that immigrated to Australia after the war when the white Australian policy was still in full effect were starting to be relaxed at that time but you know went into massive immigration detention camps there's one um at Anala in Queensland outside of Brisbane where um kind of ghettoized in that respect and um you know we're bringing these people in to help us not rebuild but to, to build our country going forward after after the war and um you know, people always like to talk romantically about the Snowy Mountain system, how it was built by immigrants and stuff too. But, you know, what these people actually went through as part of racism in this country and um, our first people as Indigenous Australians have experienced yeah. it, yeah. And they, they, they try to romanticise it and it's just, just like like I said about Chinatown, it's just kind of disgusting and, you know, um, which is why I really care about trying to, like, educate um, current um, new immigrants from, um, mm. from China who, who think... Who actually believe into um, this uh, kind of bullshit thing about uh, indigenous people being lazy, and that's why you know a lot of them are in poverty and you know experiencing sort of... um, the biggest. Yeah. You know, it's there's so many. It's hard because there's so many confronting images, right, that people see. So the media, you know, does a bang up job of presenting the images to back up those stereotypes too. And um, you know, if your immediate experience of those kind of things is, is that, then it's hard to kind of change your mind too. But the thing I always try and tell my students or, you know, remind people when I'm doing talks or anything like that is the problems that, you know, the Indigenous community face are human problems that we all experience, whether it's alcoholism, you know, dependency, all these kind of kind of things. But at their root cause is this societal dysfunction that's not any one individual's responsibility ability that you know we're in, we inherit and we're born into and yeah you can talk about you know individuals being able to do things and there's this perverse kind of individualism thing that goes on too much 
to the point where, you know, society and government and no one else is to be a hold account, to be able to provide, you know, the correct things for a society to be able to live a good life. And so many of our Indigenous have been shattered because of generational impacts of these policies that just become, you know, even further kind of entrenched with the poor decisions that are made today. And we like to or we or, you know, the government or the nation or there's a popular myth or narrative about us being a progressive country now that we've removed, you know, the white Australia policy, we've removed these um, restrictions, but they all still exist in the socio-economic status of people in the, you know, the racial undercurrent of attitudes and the way policies are implemented, the way government decisions are made. I mean, even Erica Betts most recently um, was demanding people, you know, swear allegiance basically to Australia and disown the, the, the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Republic of China because of his own, you know, it was a Senate committee based on um, immigrant diaspora and their experience of racism. And here's this, you know, long-established leading member of the, the government demanding people swear allegiance basically. I mean, that, that's where the um, post of Republic came because Kimberly Kitchen, the Labor, mm-hmm. the Labor Senator for Victoria, she... She retweeted that and like in support saying like um I you know support Australian Chinese people you know who served in World War One and two and that's when Drew went came in to do that because they're basically dog whistling saying that they do support yeah. Chinese Australians as long as they fall in line and yeah. you know denounce the, the the Chinese Communist Party um and it, you know this is the state of um, our country where the Prime Minister won't denounce that and then you also have actual Chinese politicians like Gladys Liu who is openly has been in hiding for the last week, basically. Mm. Uh, just not talking to anyone in the local Chinese press to denounce the messages because her own base is heavily built by sort of extreme far-right Hong Kongers and Taiwanese yeah. and Solomon yep. members. So she can't denounce it or she's going to lose the next election. Yeah. Yeah, it's and, just... you know, the Prime Minister's quick to denounce that Victorian health official that tweeted about Captain Cook statues, but when it comes to all these other kind of things, you know, I haven't been briefed enough on that or I haven't, you know, we're, we're really lacking um, in our political class <laughs> across the board, um, even though it's a horrible way to think of it, you know, as a whole class of people. But um, I don't know, it, long for some politicians that have got some conviction or something or, you know, ability to be able to do right. something. Yeah. I mean, who... who... Um, who are you two going to be voting for? Um, or you don't have to say it, but like, what, what is the outlook's looking like in um, for the next for the state election coming up in Queensland? Um, I don't know if Regan's got a better feel on it, but I, I reckon Labor's pretty safe. Um, yeah. The, the LNP opposition's just had a shocker of a year. Shocker yeah. of a... It was the blackface guy. I'm not the guy, not the blackface. The racist guy that was spotted today. Was he Scott? I... Yeah, they had that young LMP guy who did that video at schoolies. I don't know if it was like a year or two ago. Oh, yeah. And um, he was handing out for Kerry-Ann Dooley. And Kerry-Ann Dooley is like a serial candidate over here on the north side for the LMP um, for the last kind of decade. Um, <laughs> so she's a serial loser, basically. Yeah, Yeah, so she's going in Redcliffe up against um, Yvette Darth, who's the um, state attorney general. So I don't think... Um, yeah. They've got much. I mean, it's a marginal day, so you never yeah. Know. So I think the real interesting one will be whether or not the Greens can pick up a couple that they're looking at. I'm not entirely sure. I I've been hearing from a lot of people that the One Nation vote and stuff like that in regional Queensland has just completely collapsed. 
What? And it'll it'll probably go back to independence or to the LMP. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, uh, people Clive... just see her for her rubbish, basically. Um, you know, they've made a lot of promises, and people have, you know, it's been a couple of years now, and she's not able to deliver, or she. There's always going to be that core base, um, but I think you know Regan was just about to say Clive's been pretty active again too. So. Yeah. Um, there's just there's there's too many parties in Queensland that that eat up that One Nation vote. They all believe the same thing, but they seem to always sort of be based on um, the personality of one person. Whether it's yeah. Bob Catter's, I think his son might be this, a state member these days. Yeah. You know, then Pauline Hanson, Clive Palmer. Every now and again, some crackpot like uh, maybe Malcolm Roberts or. Um, who who was the guy that got egged? Uh, Fraser Anning. Yeah. Um, <laughs> He's like a bank on the run now. You know, okay. guys like that. <laughs> Is he? Yeah, um, yeah. He's like an American yeah. living with his um, daughter because he's tax office is after him. So <laughs> it's so typical of those guys, days. So um, just grifting till the end. Um, there, there was also. Uh, it's grift. It's all grift. Yeah. Yeah. Are the shooters um active in Queensland or? Um, I'm not sure if they're you know because of the um COVID as well. Um, so when I I was talking to some people recently about student politics on UQ campus and they said one of the problems they're having at the moment is even being able to engage people because people haven't been going to the campus and it doesn't sound like you know such a big issue but when you think about how big the UQ campus is and you know if the city was up and fully functioning and stuff like that but um there's some I was going to say before too like more broadly there's there's some pretty terrible things that the Queensland state government has been doing in some of their policy policy positions, and I'm pretty critical of their approach to their Indigenous stuff that they've been doing lately, and um, even their stance that they've taken on Adani. I think, you know, just the way they've managed it all with the development of that of the coal mines and, and that area. But with they've just got such an incom there's just such an incompetent opposition in in Queensland that you know I don't know that. Even with all the scandals that have kind of happened, the LNP's kind of been shooting itself in the foot with all their own scandals. And, um, you know, the, the border politics lately with Corona, I think, have played into all of the state leaders' hands, regardless of what some of the media, you know, has been portraying as well. So I'm not expecting um, too many surprises <laughs> at the state election. What, what I think will be interesting is, <clears throat> is when um, the election's over and then... Um, the 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 premier can start mm. doing a bunch of things that she wasn't going to do before. Like maybe she will open the borders, or um, she can rush through some more Adani stuff. Or yeah, and if they um, do, if they are re-elected, it's four-year terms in Queensland now, um, which happened at the last state election, I think, or the the one before that. They changed it. Yeah. So, um. Yeah, it'll give them the bit of space and freedom to kind of run with it, but um. I know the LNP is really being kind of cannibalising itself and referring itself to the Electoral Commission and to its state office for a couple of fundraisers that happened recently. And um, Prime Minister's been running interference as much as he can. There was another op-ed, I think, in there about him contacting the Premier, asking for a special dispensation for someone to come across the border. Um, but, yeah, it... 
wait and see, I guess. It's not long, I think three weeks or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm just um, a bit curious. I know Regan doesn't want to talk about it, but do you, do you know anything about the University of Queensland Senate elections? <laughs> I know um, that's been, uh, there's been some, some tampering, apparently, I've heard. I only know a little bit kind of secondhand, so no direct involvement. Um, I guess I should declare my, my interest. I, I've been a member of the Labour Party since I was a very young teenager. <laughs> um, and on top of that, I should probably say I'm a very disillusioned member <laughs> these days. Um, and when we're talking about like Indigenous politics and, and law, um, none of the parties have been particularly good to us over our history. And, um, you know, if we're looking at the Uluru Statement kind of stuff, I don't care whether it's the red, the green or the, the blue ones that deliver it. Um, I just want substantive structural reform change. Um, so I, I guess in declaring all of that, <laughs> um, I, I have heard a little bit, um, you know, there's so that was what I was talking about before about some of the student politics being active and how they've been um, trying to get the word out about what's happening on campus and, um, you know, concerned with how COVID might impact the election and being able to get um, their message out. But um, seen a couple of videos recently and I've heard um, there's a bit of a coalition of different interests that are trying to stamp out some of the um, more nefarious stuff that's been coming from um, Drew Pavlo and a couple of others there as well, but particularly that kind of um, interest and the mess that they may or may not create if it, if he was elected to the UQ Senate. I mean, it's extreme kind of narcissism that's represented in some of that politics, and I'm not I sure mean, how. I student politics, basically. You know, it's all yeah, that yeah. me. Yeah. But I, I, I was a <laughs> Labor member for many years, as like you, and I, I recently quit. Um, it was just too much. Like, they, it was just it was just the neoliberals. Um, yeah, show. I I grew up on stories of of Labor, so my family, I think. My first kind of political thing I can remember, my nan took me to a protest in this town called Kerrang that I used to live in in country Victoria. And Jeff Kennett was the premier at the time. And um, I just remember, so it was probably, you know, indoctrination from my family. I just remember going to this protest and she's like, we don't like him. We want him to be voted out kind of thing. And then <laughs> it was like the Steve Brax years after that. But, um, I, you know, my nan would tell stories about Gough Whitlam flying into... So, like, the other half of my family were, like, just white, poor people that lived in camps and stuff like that. So that's how they kind of, like, met my Aboriginal family and interacted and stuff like that. So, you know, coming from a very kind of destitute, white, mm. poor background. And Gough Whitlam flies into town as part of his campaign before he became Prime Minister and shook hands with my pop, who was, like, cutting wood for the council or something. They were living in a tent at the time and... Um, just those kind of memories of, you know, and stories of what Labor was or, or could have been. But, yeah, what you said then about um, the kind of just that. I mean, golf was pretty good, I have to admit. And yeah. <laughs> it was good enough to, to get the Americans' attention, so. Well, Noel Pearson, who's a prominent Indigenous Australian, always talks about it took um, Nixon to go to China. So he always talks about conservatives being the ones that opened it up. And my yeah. retort to that is always Whitlam was there before any of them. Yeah, exactly. He's like, yeah. he's and um, I was like, Whit Whitlam's the real visionary, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, so I don't know. It's it's not the party it used to be. You know, you got guys like Joel Fitzgibbon that go on about how poor people are earning two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and you know, there's 
There's working poor in this country that work full time and earn minimum wage cleaning shopping centres and shit like that. Like yeah, like thirty six. Yeah, and, yeah. and then, yeah, a lot of our immigrant community too. And these people expect to be able to. Yeah, it's just I, not. Yeah. I'm pretty disillusioned with them all across the board these days. Christina <laughs> Kinelli, like the fact that she just jumped into like a leadership position, um, just because that she demanded it and had the clout somehow. Um, she's a she's she's a migrant from the U.S. and used to be a Democrat. And she's against um, the settlement of asylum seekers on mainland Australia, yeah. even though she herself is a migrant. I'm just like, that is so hypocritical in yeah, many ways. So it's, it's one of the big issues that's really um, pushed me to the outer, um, in, in my you know, opinion and thinking on, on Labor, the, the, the refugee um, policies full stop across the board. Uh, I mean, it's yeah. maybe a little for Australians in general. Like, 60% of people support that crap. I'm just like, what's yeah. going on? No. It's, um, and that's where, kind of before I was saying, like, we're, we're really lacking in our political kind of, um, you know, groups of people that have got the conviction to be able to do something decent and deliver a message and carry people through that. Like, I think, you know, maybe it's rose-coloured glasses and I didn't live through that period, but thinking of someone like Gough Whitlam, who's just a, um, you know, a giant in every way, intellectually, physically, compared to the kind of politicians that we have today and the real base, you know, lack of humanity and everything too, but lack of reality and shit they do. And, you know, whether we look at the last, you know, whether it's through um, stuff that happened following Gillard and Rudd through Abbott, Turnbull and... Now Scott Morrison, like the Abbott Turnbull Scott Morrison years are just, <laughs> um, you know, Tony Abbott just went negative on absolutely anything. And I, I just can't understand how people, you know, with the refugee stuff, my, my thing that I always point out to my students and stuff too is we've been locking people in camps, you know, I'm talking about our my, my ancestors, Indigenous people in this mm. country since the beginning of the country. And yeah, the fact that we pretend like, you know, or, we exclude people that, or we deal with them in a particular way so we can pretend that it's all okay and we can live this kind of comfortable life and um, no one can be held accountable or responsible for it. It's disgusting. No, it is. And we, we go around sort of trying to, to, to police um, people in, you know, Indonesia or the Pacific. Yeah. Taking this up. At... <laughs> yeah, we point point the finger at everyone else, but don't don't you dare ask questions about australia <laughs> yeah i mean america we're looking at um, australia's detention policies as a potential you know harsh method to deal with uh, refugees that's how crap we are well yeah the, trump was trying to look at us yeah um you know south african apartheid was based on the permit system in queensland that was implemented oh. um so so not entirely but um they had government officials that toured queensland and were informed about the permit system that way we had here under the protection act and the way that indigenous peoples were controlled and it was implemented as part of their administrative regime you know with the permit system they had in south africa too so you know, our history with this kind of stuff is, is long and deeply entrenched in who we are. Is there any sort of uh, movement to sort of revitalise um, Indigenous language or culture? Like, you know, is yeah. there any bilingual schools or... Yeah, yeah, there's like heaps. Um, yeah. It, it, like, again, as I said before, it really depends on where you are. So, you know, there's a lot of communities, especially North Queensland, Central Queensland, Northern Territory, WA, that are, you know, um, their their traditional language is their first language. Um, so I, I have cousins in Arnhem Land who speak three or four languages and English would be their, you know, their second or third language. 
Um, so they have their own dialects and then their own um, clan-based dialects and stuff too. Um, but in other places, so there's Indigenous-run schools as well. Um, and so there's some of them in southeast Queensland. There's, a, um, there's more and more coming up in New South Wales these days. But a lot of those revitalisation programs are happening in um, you know, New South Wales, country New South Wales, Victoria too. So kids... I know out near like parks and Forbes and stuff like that, kids now learn um, Wiradjuri rather than doing Italian or German or something like that. Oh, awesome. Oh, really? Yeah, and oh. it's something that's really cool because you get the elders, you get community people coming in, and it's a language, especially Indigenous languages, are so intimately connected to the land and the country and the, you know, the animals and everything around you too. Um, so it's something you can immediately apply and have a contact to rather than you know, um, je ne sais quoi or French, German, Italian or, or whatever it is. So there's more and more of those. And it is one of the things the government actually does provide a bit of funding for. Um, and I guess pessimistically, I would say that's because it's something easy for them to do. Um, you know, you can provide $10 million for a language revival program um, and not, you know, it's, you can put that on something and say, look how fantastic yeah. you are. Um, it is fantastic that it is happening because it's, um, you know, it's my, my language where I'm from is what you would describe as technically being dead. Um, it was recorded by anthropologists and there's a program, there's a website you can go to and you can click on the word and it sounds the word out for you and um, a couple of people in our community um, learn that. And we've got words that we've maintained that we probably aren't always aware are part of our traditional language, but... They're normally all the swear words or the words for <laughs> all the bad words that we've maintained or, you know, the different versions of words for the police and welfare and stuff like that. But, um, yeah. Know, like, what are they used to the police? Ah, uh, it depends where you are. The bully man, um, the peg leg man. Um, bully man sounds fair. The jundai. Um, and then there's, I know um, of a couple of Central Australian communities that speak you know, fluently their language and the language. So a lot of the languages will be related to the peoples next to you as well. So traditionally you would have been able to travel and still converse with people through some commonality. Yeah. Um, but I know a lot of these communities, when when white people that are working in there start to catch on to what they're saying, they just make up new words for the white people and stuff like that. So they got no idea what they're talking about. Um, so it's just some of those, you know, fantastic things that language and, and culture and, you know, being communities I will provide for people. Um, Is yeah. that like another way why um, so the Maori community has a, a lot more unifying power because they have a similar language amongst the older Maori nations, while the Indigenous people in Australia, they have different um, languages, right, I'm assuming? Yeah, so one of, you know, demographically in Australia, traditionally you're looking at at least over 400 different language groups. Um, although, you know, so they, they, in Melbourne and Victoria, they talk about the Kulin nation and the language group. So a lot of those languages are very similar to one another and could um, be, you know, spoken to one another and you could understand each other. And then there's different regional areas across Australia um, that were kind of grouped together. Um, but in New Zealand, with the with the Maori language, you're looking at you know a um, different different groups and different manner across across the country, but the same language across all of it as well. So, in one respect, it it did make it easier for them to be able to um, you know negotiate and communicate in, in different ways. But 
at the same time, um, not many officials on a on a large scale level here really tried to do it too much. Yeah, but um, it's it's always just really weird because like you, you would never see you know um, Scott Morrison you know even say a few words in any indigenous language, but you see Justin Dern do it. I'm not I'm not saying Justin Dern's good, but it's just a very much different culture. In oh, New Zealand, there's a lot more I've sort of always, respect. It feels like. Yeah. yeah, I've always thought about it, and that's so that was the thing I was talking about earlier. Like the you know really deep political change New Zealand has gone through. So it hasn't always been you know the progressively outward looking nation that people will see it as. And you know I shouldn't take away from there's still some very serious issues that Indigenous peoples face in in New Zealand as well that you know shouldn't be trivialised either. But I always used to think about it, you know, on Anzac Day and the um, if if you ever see it on TV or you know if they're doing the stuff, you know, celebrating our invasion of a foreign country, <laughs> sorry, Gallipoli and stuff like that. But they yeah, everything's done in the Maori language as well as the English language, and then we've just got you know our poxy Australians there doing <laughs> doing their thing, and um, it is hard because we don't have the one language, but then at the same time, you know, you can learn things that are geographically based. Mm. Um, and I just think it, ta- yeah, it just takes people with the commitment and the will to actually do these things and to understand why they're important. And I mean, there was a treaty. What language would be signed in? Just English, or would it be there'd be different ones made for each, um, each group? Or? It would have. I mean, I think there'd probably be an over overarching thing that could be written in English, or whatever. But I think this is one of the difficulties with treaty as well. You know, who signs it? Who who is it? A pact between? What's the agreement? So. What they've done in Victoria is they've established the First Peoples Assembly first so that they can actually start this process of looking at a treaty and talking about, well, who actually does it? And I think when we look at it realistically, it has to be with each individual group. Um, And that's why a treaty is not, you know, the simple fix that a lot of people may see it as being. There's a lot more that actually needs to go into it and a process of doing that. in South Australia, they, they were starting to develop a treaty process, but then the government changed and um, the new government down there under, I think it's Stephen Marshall, um, disbanded that process. But they, the Indigenous community in South Australia had done a vote on whether or not it would be a treaty with each individual group or whether it would be a treaty with everyone and then you know each individual group would have representatives that could speak to the treaty group or whatever it was. Um, right. I, I can't remember what the, yeah, the outcome of that one was, whether they, but I think it was very close. It was like almost a 50-50 split in the Indigenous community in South Australia about whether they wanted individual treaties between each nation and the state or whether they wanted an overarching one that they would all be part of. Um, so it's very much a live issue, you know, going forward that that is part of any kind of treaty conversation too. But I often get, you know, well-meaning people saying, Things like, um, oh, wouldn't it be nice if you could all just agree on one language and, and then we can use that at you know these events? And, <laughs> and that's like a erasure yeah. of so many people. That's oh. yeah. I was like, yeah, that that'd be amazing. But you know, there's some important things you need to understand. Whereas I think when I was much younger, I I would have had a very different response <laughs> response to some people like that. But um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like um, with Mongol as well. Um, in in China, there's like. I don't know how many banners or leagues that they're, they're grouped in, and mm. they they always fighting each other to basically get the the provincial legislature to like teach our version yep. of Mongol, and it gets very messy. Um, 
Yeah, I had a... Um, sounds the same, but I mean, okay, that sounds kind of wrong, but it, there's some very small differences, but yeah. Yeah, no, I, I had someone, um, I had a visitor in one of my classes at Griffith a couple of years ago that did a presentation on on the provincial relationships there and, and into the to the main party apparatus and everything. Mm. And she was talking about, um, you know, preferential treatment that people can get if you marry you know, into one of the families and all those other kind of things. And yeah. it was just, it was really fascinating. But I, um, I remember I asked a couple of questions at the end about um, she and a couple of other things that were happening at the time and how that impacts on the politics and the community. And she was just like, oh, no, I don't believe I can answer that. I'm like, okay, not a problem. Well, I can uh, kind of because I'm from a minority family, the, the Hui Chinese Muslims. And I can tell you there's a lot of jealousy, um, but also... Yeah. It feels like that it has to be done because, yeah. um, but it, at the moment, some of it's being pulled back because now you have a lot of um, ethnic groups that are originally actually much more wealthier than the actual Han Chinese groups, like the Mongolians, because um, they have a lot of oil fields and yeah. very good land. So they, they, the average GDP per capita in some cities like 90 grand Australian a year. Wow. Um, so, um, th th and while then you actually have Chinese people in very poor regions, um, Han Chinese people, and they don't get any benefits and they actually get behind in the Mongolians, say, in exams, yeah. welfare, uh, free infrastructure, poverty alleviation. And it's just not kind of fair. Um, yeah, because she, she was talking about um, university admissions as well. Yeah, that's huge. And like, yeah, and um, like support and payments to go to university and stuff like that. It, it was fascinating to hear. I mean, I my first degree at Griffith, I did arts. It was like two majors, politics and government, Asian international studies. And Asian international studies was pretty much just Indonesia and China. Um, but we didn't do any of that kind of stuff about China. It was more just, you know, um, yeah. Zhou Enlai, Dong in the last, you know, the last kind of 30 years of national politics kind of thing. But um, I, I was fascinated. I could have spoken to her but for, yeah. They have a very um, good, um, I, I'd say, I, I don't agree most of the Chinese ethnic policies, especially with, um, say, uh, say the, the forced re-education in Xinjiang for mm. some people, but um, they're very strong on bilingual education. It's absolutely free. It's um, you, you can opt in, opt out. Yeah. Um, the, the languages are, are shown everywhere publicly on street signs, on public institutions, on TV. Um, it's very well done in terms of preserving the languages of the indigenous yeah. people um, in China. Um, even like dead languages like Manchu has less than 10 speakers. You can go to a school and learn for free in university. And you can't oh. do that in Australia. Oh. Um, and, you know, it, it's funny. Um, they Australians always keep attacking China on all these, like, you know, language death and cultural genocide. But China's actually spending a lot of money in it because in, in its – well, China has a constitution. It has its own laws where every 56 minority, every single minority is equal. Mm. Well, I guess in some ways Chinese are at the bottom because they can't really get that many fruit as much as uh, welfare. But <laughs> more or less they're equal, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I've been thinking about it a lot lately with, you know, the rhetoric on China and everything, that her presentation and um, all, all of those things that you just mentioned then that she spoke about and, um, you know, how how we run a particular narrative of progressivism and hu human rights and stuff like that. And yeah. here he you have this almost, you know, for, for certain parts of it, um, a perfect example of um, bilingual, you know, policies and, and multiculturalism across different ethnic groups. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. 
I mean, um, the our, the mosque that we have in our family, which is the oldest in Xinjiang, was actually renovated fully by the government in China. Uh, just out of, you know, they just did it because, um, I don't know, something about Hui Chinese would like to gang up on people and we, we just get really pissed off. when It's, it's kind of <laughs> like um, the Italians down in Ligon. We're like, oi, fucking Han cunts. They don't fucking give us the cash. We're going to fucking start smashing windows. It's like, um, you know those noodles? Do we pull them? The, the really long ones? Yeah, like we've got like a cartel going. If we find someone that's not Muslim, build like halal guy building a noodle restaurant, we smash it up. It's kind of fucked up. But <laughs> no, please but let's, I, let's get away with it because like I um I love yeah. it. It's you know well, what's important too, right? I mean I I think especially in you know Western countries or whatever you want to call it, we we shy too much or you know predominant culture um values shy too much away from preserving cultures and traditions as though it's bad and, you know, regressive and stuff like that. But I love it. It shows the passion and tradition and, you know, the absolute importance of those things. Oh, it's kind of yeah. bad, though, because like, you get away with a lot of crap if you're oh, a yeah. um, ethnic minority. Because once you, if you arrest the ethnic minority, it gets caught by by Western journalists. It can become some kind of exaggerated sort of yeah outright suppression campaign. That's the problem. So I've heard stories of, like, um, you know, non-Hun stabbing a Hun person and just getting away with it if there's a white person nearby. It's just stuff. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess they're the, you know, they're the, just like Indigenous communities here, hey, they're, they're the intricacies that you don't get from a news report or anything about the reality yeah. of what's going on on the ground. Yeah, like, you see, like, the Australians still hiring, um, what's that, Bill Leak, that guy and his, and his kid? Oh, he's his son. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I, I, um went on a twitter rant about him a while ago like how unoriginal as an artist he is because he's just copied his father like it's just you know if, if you didn't know that his father had passed and that he'd taken over you just assume it's the same artist and it's the same you know, well, he's passed, and everything. yeah so bill league passed a couple of years ago and his son johannes now does all of the cartoons but it's you know the exact same style and you know, repetitive infamous and everything. I was, where I was where do they like, go? Is that like some kind of racist cartoon school where they study a bachelor's degree in? Or... Well, there was that there was that student from QUT. I think his name was Callum Thwaites or something like that. That um, he got kicked out of. Uh, so the story goes, he got asked to leave one of the um, computer labs that was in the Indigenous Student Centre at QUT, and he um, he took his fight all the way to the, you know, the human rights group, whatever they, I can't remember. Gillian Trigg was in charge at the time. And, yeah, I remember, yeah. Uh, it became this big freedom of speech thing, and Bill Leake was involved with him at the time because Bill Leake had done this cartoon about um, there was, like, a black fella holding the, or a police officer bringing a kid back to a black fella who was holding, like, VB cans, and he's like, you got to look after you. Oh, which one's that? I don't know which kid that is kind of thing. So it was about... And then so he jumped on the bandwagon with that kid and Andrew Bolt and all those others because at that time there was this big push to change the Racial Discrimination Act in 18C, um, you know, where you can be civilly at least um, <laughs> reprimanded for, for being a racist. And uh, Brandis at the I, time. Oh, and yeah, David Linehelm. Yeah, he's like, my free speech, mate. Yeah. And it was I forgot about that. Like, you got a right to be a bigot. Kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, I forgot about that, the, the, the computer room, computer lab at QUT. Yeah. Because um, it, it did seem like that was all a setup from the very beginning to specifically, oh, yeah. specifically cause 
um, a drama and then take it to the courts. And it very reminiscent of um, not reminiscent. It seemed like a premonition for for Drew Pavlo that yeah. there's these sort of like these uh, people can build their grift by um, yep. some imagined oppression. Yeah, the outrage, right? The folk, the folk yeah. outrage. We used to get a. So I used to work in the the student support, the Indigenous student support at Griffith, and um, the Gold Coast campus more than any of the other campuses is, is particularly racist. Um, I don't know if that just says something about the Gold Coast or. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's very old, very high, like older conservative age group. Yeah. I, I've got a lot of other opinions about the Gold Coast as well, um, based on... I, I used to be a customs officer a long time ago. Um, and, yeah, so the Gold Coast is just high on my shit list for a lot of things. Must have um, seen <laughs> uh, you know, from police corruption all the way through to just your everyday shitbag Australian traveller, like, that would go to, you know, Southeast Asia and take advantage of and come back here like an entitled arsehole. I mean, the fact uh, that we have a law now to stop people with um, sexual uh, misconduct in Australia mm. from going to Southeast Asia because of the amount of pedophilia in our uh, country is just fucked uh, up. Some of the, like, sex pests thing going on sex tours and shit like that. Yeah, um, did, you, did you see this Adelaide guy got caught? He was, like, the biggest pedophile in Southeast Asia. It's on like 5,000 photos, some some shit. Yeah. There's so many old white Australian men yeah. in prisons throughout Southeast Asia for yeah. pedophilia and you know, sex crimes. So it's just, you know, I don't think people realise. But um, the Student Support Centre, <laughs> yeah, they they would take, so students would walk past and they'd take a photo of, you know, the name on, and this is pretty much, I think, what happened with this other student. So they create this faux outrage out of this situation where they, you know, why do these people, you know, they they take race. One of the favorite, you know, thing for racists to, to do is like quote Martin Luther King out of, out of context and say, oh, what happened to judging people by the content content of their character and not by the color of their skin? And then they say, you know, you know, affirmative action or any of these special support programs and like that are racist. And so they. You know, they'd post it to something like UQ Stalker Space or the Griffith Confessions page or um, they'd start this whole thing about how they're being racially oppressed and, um, you know, at university it would become this outrageous, you know, kind of thing. And more often than not, it would become the bigger thing than what it was because of ineptitude from, you know, university administrators or um, people that, you know, entertained this this kind of bullshit going on Wait, how, how were they being oppressed because like they didn't get oh know. yeah basically um indigenous people don't have it you know it's all the stereotypes so we don't have it nearly as bad as what people think um you know the whole mlk thing judge someone by the character not by the color of skin this is reverse racism um this is racism against white people you know i come from a poor socioeconomic background i should be able to get support which you know People Fair enough. They should be able to get support. That's a bigger problem with the government, full stop. Um, but, you know, so you've got a group of kids, basically, you know, young adults that are studying in there. Um, I'd often have, you know, vulnerable students as well with disability services that I'd support a lot that were Indigenous were studying. And all of a sudden they're thrust into the middle of this, you know, one dickhead's campaign for, yeah. you know, freedom of speech and this crusade. And, um, you know, and I think what we've seen kind of nationally, it's 
there's been that criticism of safe spaces and freedom of speech on campuses and all this other kind of rubbish. Um, mm. And yeah, it, I mean, it was always something that could have blown up like it did at QUT. And I think it probably could on any of the campuses. It just you know, depends on how people deal with it. But then the grift as well, like we said before, some of these people are just getting around, you know, creating these storms out of nothing so that they can grift off it and push this particular ideological message that they're trying to run. Where's so the that grift kid, um, for the pro the pro indigenous grifters? Where are they? Do they exist? Well, this is the thing, right? Like you've got these kids, you know, people are just trying to get by and study, let alone have to worry about yeah. um you know, and, and this is something about um there's I think um I can't remember who did it. I think a guy wrote a book about it and did a documentary in the US where he travelled around like McDonald's stores and spoke about the impact that like low socioeconomic status has on you know survival instincts and your ability to be able to make decisions and save for the future and do stuff like that so a lot of you know not infantilizing indigenous students or saying that you know they're all vulnerable and don't know what they're doing and stuff but they're all it's the same kind of thing with communities right so indigenous communities are trying to survive they're trying to manage the different multiple different issues they have every day and they're being budgets cut they're being forced with these kind of things and then, um, you know, you want to be kind of advocating for as much as you can to progress and change. And then next minute you get these uppity privileged kids come in and say that you're being reverse racist to them. And, you know, by the way, I'm going to take you to, you know, the federal court and sue you for <laughs> racial discrimination. And, yeah, and, and at that time, that kid from QT, he had a, you know, senior barrister, a QC in, in Brisbane that racked up like $200,000 defending him that, that they fundraised through a GoFundMe page for and stuff like that. And, um, you know, where the, you know, who, who's really oppressed? Yeah. He has a QC like, uh, and he's like, what, 21 or something? No, 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 this, this old guy, this, oh, this is QC, oh, really? like, what, okay. yeah, quite an, so it, you know, this is the kind of thing and this is, you know, stuff where that we see, um, you know, with other people that are active in student politics at the moment, they attract the attention of these kind of people that are willing to push their narrative through it and provide support for it, and yeah, it just like, becomes... I, I don't understand, like, Drew, Drew's always, like, defending, you know, the, the extremely right-wing um, sort of part of the Hong Kong community who literally say that uh, mainland Chinese are cockroaches are inhuman and should be uh, genocided. Mm. And, and it's just like, come on, man, like, th these people... If you want to defend them, at least defend to the more moderate types, but not the yeah. ex extreme far right. And and but you know people don't see that. All they see is like, oh, China bad. There's the yeah, and then types, you they know? just get this like moronic media class, like sixty minutes and shit, doing stories on True Pavlo and you know. And I mean, but yeah, you know, he's it's the kind of people that are running the narrative that providing the support that have been running this anti-Chinese, you know. All the way through Andrew Hasty on the foreign affairs and security committees in, in Parliament. Did you see sure his you... Uh, comments six years ago, Andrew Hasty, when he uh, yeah. talked about Xinjiang? He was like, "Oh, yeah. what China's doing there is good." And, oh fuck! And I'm just yeah. like, ooh, ooh. I mean, you know, without getting us into dangerous territory with him as well, he, he's Not got true. a lot of unanswered questions with the current stuff that's going on into. Um, investigations and special forces behaviour in the Middle East. Cut hands well. and uh, a bit, bit of a Congo going on there. Yeah, and you know, um, they get their parliamentary privilege and they sit there and they think that they're, you know, emboldened and they can argue and do whatever they want. And it's, re it's real petty though. Like, I, 
I don't know if you guys saw the the Australian Press Club recently. The um, I think it was someone from the ambassador's Chinese ambassador's office, or it might have been him himself, did a speech there, and um, they served beef and Australian barley because the Chinese government had recently put tariff on Australian barley. So there was just this like, you know, uh, thing about, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, we're. You know, I, I just really love and buy into the thing from a Chinese point of view that we are just these minnows on the bottom of this. <laughs> no, no, seriously, that, that's what it is. Because it's yeah, like when we behave in that way, and I'm just like, oh god. No, no one in China ever talks to Australia apart from when they want to buy like vitamins or some yeah. crap like that. And it's like Australia things like we're like some super important country just because we sell rocks and destroy our environment. You know, yeah. to oh, we've. We've always had this like problem with our place, you know, in the world, yeah. um, and how we behave. And I know I can't remember them off the top of my head, but there's particular historians and like um, political scientists that write about like how it impacts our behaviour on, the, um, you know, on the foreign stage with foreign affairs and our relationship with America, and you know how we. Um, I mean, it's been some good. Stuff. Now there's like a spending war in the Pacific, you know. So Australia's trying to spend more to get foreign aid than China. It's benefiting the Pacific countries in a way. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, they should take whatever they can get from us because we've been screwing them all over for oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I really hope that, you know, Fiji, Papua New Guinea just yeah. play America, China, Japan, Taiwan, everyone against yeah. us, <laughs> each other and, and uh, get some infrastructure. <laughs> I, Nauru particularly is just a horrible story of Australian imperialism, basically. Yeah, and, um, and Have now you we seen just... the, the tower down in uh, Melbourne CBD, the Nauru Tower? No. Uh, it's, well, it's called something else now, but um, that's basically what they spent like half the GDP on, apparently, and invest some random tower in Australia, and now they just have holes over the country. And yeah, because we you know, went and stole all their phosphorus. And, um, so my, my uncle um, that's married in the family, he's from Bougainville, and oh. um, you know, the whole he, he fought in the Civil War there. And um, and the coconut oil rebellion they called it, where they stole all these cars and retrofitted them to run on coconut oil and stuff like that. He's got these amazing stories, but Australia's involvement in all of it, and people forget, you know, Australia. We we were a um, we controlled New Guinea for a period of time after um, the Germans. You know, the kind of, yeah, and um, just the impact that we've had throughout the whole region. Um, you know, I I hope they. Yeah, I mean, East Timor too, with the stuff that's been going on yeah. with, you know, that, that we were spying on them and all that kind of stuff. I hope they just play us all off against and get whatever they can out of us because they deserve everything that they can get. Yeah, definitely. Get. So on that note, um, let's call it because we're getting a bit. Really appreciate you coming on the show, dude. No, um, thank you. Good. Uh, we'll have to get you on again sometime. Yeah, I might get um, um, called in to swear allegiance to the state now after... <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. Revealing so. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> well, apparently there's a lot of um, you know, there's there's this bit of a stick that comes from like the in, um indigenous activist community that are really against some of us that you know support the Uluru statement. They think that because we're lawyers, um, we all signed like a blood oath to the queen, um, oh. and. It just it reminds me so much of this thing that comes up all the time about allegiances and stuff like that. Because there is a thing if you practice as a lawyer, right? You you swear an allegiance to, um, you know, the profession, and you, you got to do all that. And Senator Thorpe, who's from Melbourne, um, from the Indigenous community, 
yeah, it's fantastic to see her in the Senate, but she's one of the people that supports treaty first and, and has those ideas about sovereignty. But I think one of the great ironies or the lessons from her appointment is that she's entered into Parliament and sworn an allegiance to the Crown um, as as a member of Parliament so that she can try and change the place. And for me, you know, there's no better representation of why we need a First Nations voice because mm. it just shows the practicality of what we're dealing with and what we need to do. I mean, is there anything but, that, um, you know, we only have around 500 listeners per episode, but that you can direct us to um, to support your cause or...? Um, uh, there's just the UlluriStatement.org website. Um, keep an eye on it. Um, it. It's a bit old. It's being redeveloped, and there's going to be some more stuff kicking off next year. But um, I don't know. I really I do the real annoying thing and just tell people to read and try and educate themselves. To, <laughs> very, very vaguely, read read stuff. But um, we'll, we'll link to your um, we'll link to your profile on the conversation because you have a bunch of articles there yeah. and stuff yeah. that yeah. lay it out pretty well. So, yeah. All right, thanks, dude. No, no, thanks for having me. It's been great. Chupé